This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to London Live. What did you know about our healthcare system before this began? If you do not have a nurse in the family, a doctor in the family, a personal support worker in the family, if you're not friends with anyone in those professions, you knew that your OHIP card was green. Your health card was green. used to be red and white. Sometimes that was about it. You knew where hospitals were, and then you started hearing all kinds of things about treating COVID-19 patients that needed to be hospitalized. We've learned an awful lot, and I think we've had our eyes opened to our health care system. If you have to make use of it, you know that if there is a major problem, somebody is going to be there. You know that. But in terms of how it functions overall, I think we've really had our eyes open to the work of the PSWs, of the nurses, of the doctors, of the custodial staff, and of the administrators. And joining us right now is someone who can talk to us a bit more about that. Dr. Ivy Borgo is a professor in the Telfer School of Management and the Institute of Population Health at the University of Ottawa and the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. Dr. Borgo, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I really appreciate um, having the opportunity to speak to you about this really, really important topic. Let's kind of look at that kind of open window that we've had into our healthcare system, because now there are all kinds of stories about it. People are appreciating it, sure, and we see so many things like Wortley Village in London. Everybody gets out at 7.30 and they make all kinds of noise. All of this is fantastic, but maybe you knew this before. What do you feel we have been able to learn through all of this? Absolutely. Well, and it really is great to kind of have that show of support for the health workers, because it's really important to recognize that our health system is labor intensive. Therefore, the health system are our health workers. That's how we interface with the quote unquote system that's out there. And so if we don't have access to health workers, we don't have um, health care. And so that's a really important thing to, to take into consideration, making that much more visible um, that our health care system are the health workers at the at the front line. And they're the ones that we all wind up being pretty concerned about right now because a lot of them have been going full tilt since this began. Are we going to see maybe evidence that, hey, we have great health care workers in this country, however, we need to do something so that we don't get into situations like this again. Do you think we're going to take data and, and really analyze it from that perspective? That is my sincere hope, is that there will be an, some opportunities and some legacies coming out of this crisis, that we will be better able to plan next time around uh, much better. Even the models that they're projecting, and I'm sure that everybody has seen those famous curves, the spiky curve, the flattened curve, and that line that says we want to keep the curve below health system capacity. Well, none of those models presently in Canada have been taking health workforce data into consideration. So what they are modeling are ICU beds, they're modeling ventilators, but a ventilator doesn't work without a worker who is applying the ventilator to you. And then you need people to intubate you to put you on a ventilator. An ICU bed has multiple people around that bed. So everything, again, even in the modeling, although we are recognizing that our health system 
our, our health workers by clapping for them. In the modeling, we are still not taking those data into consideration. And that's something that I would like to change. And we, we do have some data that we can utilize to incorporate into those models and better appreciate what's going to be happening. Um, but then there's also some improvements that we can make to data to better plan this. And, and, and we shouldn't just be planning for crisis. This is critically important right now, but we should also just be planning as an everyday state. How do we respond to all the stuff that's been backlogged while we're working on COVID, other non-COVID emergent conditions? What about what's happening in terms of chronic conditions right now? Again, with our focus on COVID, that's still, we still need to be modeling for the health workforce there. We, we don't even count personal support workers. Um, and so how can we take them into consideration? So what's been happening in long-term care, um, we can't model because we just don't have the data. So I'm hoping at the very least out of this, we'll be able to much better capture those data. Now, Dr. Ivy, we're going. Yeah. No, sorry. Go ahead. Well, the other thing that I wanted to take into consideration, as you said, you know, people are working really, really hard. And so there's all of the anticipatory anxiety that they have about planning and making sure that they have enough personal protective equipment and ventilators and respirators. And then there's their, they're working full out. And we're told that this is going to be a marathon and not a sprint. So you have to pace yourself. And so you have to make sure that you give people, you know, some time off. How do we model for when people get sick and how long they're going to have to be off? Because it's not just the public that's going to get sick the health workers are disproportionately more at risk of getting this. So we have to take that into consideration in how do we project how our system is responding to it. Great, great information. We're talking with Dr. Ivy Borgo, professor in the Telfer School of Management and the Institute of Population Health at the University of Ottawa and the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. One final thing, Dr. Borgo, when we look at our world, for years now the push has been how much can you do with how little? So can mm-hmm. we look after this many people with only this many healthcare workers? Oh, look, we can. Okay, could we take away one more healthcare worker? And we do that in so many different aspects of our lives because we all look at the bottom line. And yeah. in something like this, you know, with bottom line stuff, if you have a big pandemic going on, you're going to need all hands on deck. When there isn't yeah. a need for all hands on deck, how do we justify having enough hands in case that deck fills up again? Well, what we have been doing in healthcare is applying what we call sort of lean management, right? Just enough, just having enough. And I appreciate that there are cost implications of, you know, what I'm going to say. I'm not a health economist, but I know enough about that. We need to make sure that we have surge capacity and that we have sort of backup plans, you know, for, uh, again, how it is that we shore up you know, resources that are available. We don't have that in the system. And and that's something that we have to build into um, any type of robust, responsive system. You know, there's this crisis that we have. There may be natural disasters. In Australia, they had the wildfires, and how did they have to plan around that? Um, we are going to get those types of things. You know, some areas in Canada are concerned about what's going to happen with the flooding and the fires that come in and on top of COVID. So we need to have much better 
um, backup surge capacity as well as redundancy. And redundancy not just in the frontline workers, but in those making leadership um, decisions. And that's been you know, critically lacking. Dr. Burgo, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us today. It will be very interesting to see the approaches coming out of this when we do find a way to eventually come out of this. Be safe. All the best. Thank you so much. That is Dr. Ivy Burgo, professor in the Telfer School of Management and the Institute of Population Health at the University of Ottawa. We've learned so much about healthcare workers. Look at what Dr. Burgo says about PSWs, personal support workers. Not even in the data. Not even recognized. Well, that's got to be one of the first things that changes. We're realizing the value when somehow we didn't before. Not sure why that was. It's just always been a thing. PSWs don't wind up making a lot of money. Are they valued? Mm, Not sure. Are they needed? Absolutely. So now what? A lot of questions. We have an opportunity right now to hear from somebody who is well-versed in COVID-19 because it's been a part of his life for a little while. Dr. Jason Kindrachuk is an assistant professor of viral pathogenesis in the Department of Medical Microbiology at the University of Manitoba. Dr. Kindrachuk, thanks for taking some time for us. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Take us back to a time when most of us were getting ready to celebrate. We were coming to the end of another decade, 2019 ending, the ball dropping, parties all over the place. It was New Year's Eve. That's what a lot of us were doing. You were in a bit of a different position. You were kind of looking around and discovering something that would eventually be called COVID-19. Take us back to your New Year's Eve of 2019. Yeah, you know, it's a sad time in my life when I finally have to admit that uh, I've gotten old enough that, you know, scrolling around on Twitter is uh, is now my, my way of celebrating. Uh, we, we've got a, a, an 18-month-old at home, so my wife and my daughter had both gone to sleep. And uh, th- there was basically a report that got posted from uh, Wuhan uh, talking about basically that there were these uh, atypical pneumonia cases that had shown up, and they described them as being SARS-like. And, uh, you know, I, I still actually have the, the screenshot, but myself and uh, uh, another uh, PhD uh, out of the U.S., who's also an emerging virus researcher, Dr. Megan May, uh, started talking about what we thought was going on. And, and I think for us, you know, it, it, the way that the the way that the post was written, um, you know, it definitely kind of spoke a little bit about about the concern. It, this was something that was uh, obviously a regular um, and, you know, seemed to maybe harken back to the fact that that something new was on the horizon, though, to be fair, I, listen, none of us had uh, any, I think, inclination at that point that, you know, less than four months later, we would essentially be in the position we are now. And that's really interesting to hear because we get a lot of criticism of our political leaders that, well, why didn't you know sooner? and Why didn't you do more? And there's all of this hindsight talk. But even in your position, when you're looking at viral pathogenesis on a regular basis, you're looking at viruses, you're looking at how they develop. It still was one of those things that, you know, didn't quite have all the dominoes going at that point. So when you first saw it, I mean, being in the field that you are, what do you do? Do you do you discuss it? Do you monitor it? Do you look for as much information as you can get? Well, you know, for for us, the the actually the real advantage that we've had uh, with with COVID nineteen 
uh, is, you know, now scientists uh, across the board and researchers, I think, have become somewhat adept at social media. And, and that actually is the one thing that, that I think really helped us a lot was that we were able to discuss with colleagues around the world in real time what, what we thought was going on and, and also get reports uh, directly from Chinese researchers uh, that, uh, you know, that were monitoring the situation on the ground uh, to, to get an idea of, of what, what the situation actually looked like and what, the, what essentially this illness looked like. So, you know, for us, we were able to uh, adapt and respond very quickly and of course, that, uh, you know, that led to uh, obviously the World Health Organization getting involved very quickly. But I also think, um, you know, getting the, the message out across the research community also helped uh, in both enable and as well embolden um, politicians around the globe to maybe take this a little bit more seriously uh, than they would have uh, had there not been such a, you know, a kind of a, an outcry from the scientific community. So it almost sounds like from your perspective, people did act as quickly as they could, and maybe even more quickly than they would have had we not have to, had tools of, you know, global connectivity. Yeah, you know, I think for the scientific community, I don't think there's any debate. And, and the one thing I will say, if there is any silver lining out of COVID-19, uh, from, from my perspective, it's been the fact that the, the research community, uh, regardless of, you know, political differences and regional differences, um, came together immediately. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, even myself here in Canada, uh, in, in Winnipeg, you know, we, we got a, a team of uh, a few different researchers to put out, uh, you know, a, a publication on, on COVID-19 within uh, a couple of weeks, uh, you know, after the start of January, because we, we obviously saw that this was something different. And I think that that helped uh, maybe push governments. I mean, listen, hindsight's going to be 2020. There are ultimately going to be um, things that uh, that people are going to point back at and identify shortcomings in our, our response efforts, uh, both globally as, as well as uh, even here in Canada and, and even, you know, at the level of the different provinces. Um, but I, I think at, at this time, listen, we are still definitely within the, the midst of battling COVID-19. And, and I think we really need to kind of keep the focus on that um, as opposed to trying to administer blame at this point, because it, ultimately we, we still have a tough road ahead of us. Great point. We're talking with Dr. Jason Kindrachuk, Assistant Professor in Viral Pathogenesis in the Department of Medical Microbiology at the University of Manitoba. Let's talk about that battle. Watching this unfold, we have over 2 million cases worldwide that we know about. Chances are there are a lot of cases we don't know about that could even inflate that number further. What do you see going forward in terms of dealing with this virus? Uh, so th- this is a great question, and, and I was reading, you know, some some different uh, posts on this this morning, uh, you know, of, of people talking about uh, the fact as as researchers that we need to admit when we don't know, and, and and I think that this is a great point. This is one of these cases where I don't think we have a good perception uh, of what to expect, and and I say that as somebody that that was on the ground in West Africa during Ebola, but still spends a lot of time in in West Africa and, and deals with you know emerging viruses on a daily basis. I think we are still trying to understand how, you know, how the, the train is going to look um, not only a couple of weeks from now, but a few months from now. And I, I think we're learning, uh, you know, very quickly. We're, we're seeing the situation uh, kind of unfold in, uh, in Asia right now with uh, obviously Singapore and in Japan as they started to maybe reduce uh, physical distancing measures, um, what types of things that they've had to face and, and uh, problems that they've had with resurgence of transmission. Uh, I, I think that will help guide us, obviously. Um, but I, I think for us, you know, listen, in Canada, we, we've done very well. Uh, definitely here in the prairies, 
I think we've, you know, we've really, I don't want to say we've dodged a bullet, but we've been able to be responsive very quickly. Um, but we have to stay the course. This is the time period when it, it's probably going to be the most difficult because we've, we've seemingly started to get over the peak in many places. Um, but now the problem is we don't have, uh, you know, we, we don't think we have herd immunity uh, by, by any stretch in the community. We don't have a vaccine. So our ability to try and, and defeat this virus or contain it even is to reduce transmission and identify people that are infected or people that are contacts of those that have been infected and, and, and essentially get those people uh, isolated. Yeah, this has been a strange week where it's almost like, okay, when do we when do we get back to normal a little bit? But I think we've got to realize this virus has not changed. Nothing. The landscape hasn't changed in any way, has it? No, and, and that's the, the real difficulty, right? And, and listen, we, we saw this in, uh, in West Africa, and we're seeing it in, in the DRC with, uh, you know, with their current Ebola outbreak. Um, there is a complacency, I think, that sets in when you start to kind of get over that hump and you, you know, if things seem like they're working and we're, you know, we're kind of making the strides that we need to. Um, but almost at a subconscious level, I think people start to, uh, you know, maybe get a little bit less concerned about the things they're doing from a distancing standpoint um, or, or the things that, that they've been, you know, trying to uh, you know, try to limit in terms of their contact with others. Um, and the unfortunate side with, with this virus is, you know, if we, if we change those distancing, uh, you know, uh, measures on our own or within communities, it's not the next day that we find out that there's been a change. It's a week to two weeks down the road. So the problem is, the, you know, the things that we do differently today and, and the reductions, uh, the social distancing measures that we take personally today, we won't see those effects for a couple of weeks. And, and that makes it more difficult because, again, we're, we're always trying to, you know, to understand, you know, what happened. Uh, in the past, uh, when, when we look at, at results and, and case numbers. So, you know, I, I think we just need to really continue uh, kind of, you know, getting the public messaging out, um, you know, being empathetic to, to people, understanding that obviously this is an, an amazingly difficult situation for, for many Canadians, uh, you know, across the board. Um, but we, we really need to do what we can right now to, to continue to curb transmission. Well, Dr. Kendrachuk, we thank you so much. Maybe we can talk in the future about your time with Ebola and dealing with viruses that take over. And, you know, that's one of those viruses that we don't think enough about because of maybe where it happened, because you're looking at the, the transmissions being in Africa and not so much here. But, wow, uh, it's uh, it's quite a story that you have. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and your insight with us today. You bet, Mike. Thanks so much for having me on. Take care. Well, that is Dr. Jason Kindrachuk, assistant professor in viral pathogenesis at the Department of Medical Microbiology at the University of Manitoba. And he was a guy who, like he pointed out, he's looking around on New Year's Eve and all of a sudden there's this SARS related virus. And next thing you know, doctors, PhDs start talking and they can talk around the world and say, "Okay, what do we got here? Next thing you know, the World Health Organization is being tipped off that we need to do something. As much as we can look back in hindsight and say, not enough was done. What if you didn't have that initial connectivity? How long might it have taken then? And what would those effects have been? Scary, huh? Man, coming to the end of a week, we've learned an awful lot this week. One of the things that I think needs to stand out, routine. Routines have changed. We actually talked with Dr. Hassan Mustafa, who is a dentist in London, 
And he had mentioned that families get out of routines. You got to make sure the kids are brushing their teeth through all of this because everything kind of changes in every aspect of life. Some families are at the point where you're getting up later. Even meals kind of change. You get up later, you have breakfast, the kids aren't hungry at noon. It's all a little different. It's all an adjustment period, and it is one of those day-by-day things. If we look back to a couple of points made by Ontario Premier Doug Ford, one, this is going to be a, a big, I guess, point on Monday at which people kind of pay attention to what's being said. Modeling numbers due to come out again on Monday. They'll put those together this weekend, and the modeling numbers again showing what the likelihood is of number of cases, number of deaths in Ontario going forward. I mean, if nothing was done, look at the first models. 100,000 cases. We're not there right now. In fact, in Ontario at the moment, we have 9,525 cases. We have seen... Uh, far fewer deaths than were originally predicted. So, I mean, that's 523 deaths is where we sit. That's too many. But at the same time, it's not as many as were predicted. And we have seen 4,500 people out of those 9,500 declared as having recovered from COVID-19. The effect is far-ranging, and it is over the entire planet. We have over 200 countries affected by this. And yes, we can talk health care, and yes, we can talk politics. Sports is also something else that we have been paying close attention to. And we had QMJHL Commissioner Gilles Courteau quoted recently as saying it may be January of 2021 before his league is able to operate. I mean, everybody's creating contingency plans. You have to have them. Joining us right now is the Commissioner of the Ontario Hockey League, Mr. David Branch. Mr. Branch, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you so much, Mike. Uh, good to hear your voice, and I trust this finds you keeping well. Yeah, yeah, not too bad. How about you? How are you dealing with this? Uh, first of all, first and foremost, uh, my health is great. That's what uh, counts at, at this time. That, that keeps everything in, in perspective. Uh, do we have some challenges? Uh, in hockey, yes, but they pale in comparison to the challenges that we have in life right now. And, you know, we all have to, as you know, we've been seeing, work together uh, for the common good. That whole teamwork thing, yeah, we've been we've been hearing be on the same team, and uh, we've been learning those qualities from the sports world for a long time, Mister Branson. Let's talk a little bit about the comments from Gilles Corteau in the QMJHL about contingency plans. There, how are you dealing with contingency plans in Ontario? Well, um, I'm aware of what uh, Mister Corteau uh, stated. Uh, I haven't had an opportunity to speak to him about it. I'm not certain if there are certain issues that their league has, uh, say in the area of arena facilities and when they can open up. I just don't know. But right now, excuse me, our league is planning to open up uh, on time. Uh, that said, uh, we also recognize that, you know, we'll create oh, some wiggle room at the start of the season uh, if we must. And at the end of the day, if we have to make adjustments based on uh, health conditions 
government guidelines, we of course will. But we're not building out any contingency plan at this time uh, by way of dates or when we will start or, or this and other things associated around that, Mike. Too soon. Well, it's never too soon on one hand. But, I mean, you know, we've had dialogue uh, among our member teams. And uh, the great thing about hockey people is, you know what, uh, they never give up. Uh, it's never over till it's over, as we say. You were touching on the hockey theme, the culture of our great game. And that's one of the things, I believe, that helps uh, set us apart. And, and I think that we just hope that uh, we can get started as we normally would. We would hope that we, we can be part of the healing process and uh, get people active and let's get our great game going, not only at our level, but right down to minor hockey, etc. The Commissioner of the Ontario Hockey League, David Branch, joining us. Mr. Branch, in terms of some of the discussions being had in the pro ranks, the idea of playing without fans or the idea of playing in neutral sites, have those conversations come up or would they even apply to major junior hockey? Well, first of all, Mike, I'm not really familiar with the NHL, you know, is necessarily contemplating. Um, Mr. Batman has made it very clear that they're exploring, you know, all options, uh, I, and, and so forth. I'm not sure what all those options we necessarily uh, cover. But, uh, I mean, in terms of playing without spectators uh, at our level, that just can't work. I mean, we are a group-driven league. Uh, 80 to 85% of our revenue comes from live gates. So, I mean, hey, we have to uh, hope that... Uh, we can get back and, and have spectators and continue to receive the great support that we've enjoyed over the last number of years. I guess as a final question, in in all markets, how often do you wind up meeting and, and talking with your member teams about what is happening? Well, I, I mean, we have uh, what we call an executive council uh, made up of five owners <clears throat> that I uh, have been um, – meeting with by phone uh, weekly. Uh, we're having a full governor's call next week. Uh, we have committees uh, that uh, are constantly meeting from our competitions committee, uh, our, our marketing uh, committee. Uh, we have started a, a theme entitled Back to Business, and uh, at the right time, we, we have to get back at it, and, and that'll be a bit of a read and react, as they say. We enjoyed our priority selection on April 4th. Uh, great success uh, for the players and families involved uh, for our teams. And then, you know, we established an all-time high in terms of 6.5 million plus uh, social media uh, following, which is huge. And we're looking forward to our league awards, which will be announced throughout the first uh, few weeks of May. Our import draft is June 30th. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things that uh, cause us to be active and getting excited about getting back to, to play on the ice. Great to hear. And we'll look forward to that and kind of celebrating or celebrating the uh, 
kind of the uh, the return to normalcy at some point, and we hope that's in the near future. Mr. Branch, continued success, and please stay safe and have yourself a good weekend. I appreciate it very much, Mike, and the same to you and your listeners. Uh, good health. Take care. That is OHL Commissioner David Branch. And so, as he says, the plan is right now to start on time. And here's hoping that that's something that can happen. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.